Transmission incoming, over. Copy that, transmission received. You're listening to the Christian Paranormal Podcast. Welcome back to Christian Paranormal. This is a show that was originally done about a year ago on Skinwalker Radio, which is a different podcast I had, which is closing up shop and will be deleted as soon as I repurpose some of the material here. Some of it will go away forever. Some of it is extremely relevant to my audience here. The topic of today's conversation will be remote viewing, and Paul Smith is my guest. He was in the Army, where the Army actually developed the remote viewing program as a way to remotely spy on the Russians and many other things via a program called Project Stargate. And that could be a series of books all by itself. But we're going to stick to the idea of remote viewing. What it is, what it is not, how it originated, what are these remote viewers up to today, 40 years removed from this work within the military. Paul Smith breaks it all down for us. This is a really interesting conversation, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm uh, awake, up out of bed and awake. That's good. Yeah, no, that's all you can ask for some days. I, uh, <laughs> the weather has been fantastic, but we're locked inside because of all this quarantine stuff, and there's not really a whole lot of places to go other than the backyard, unfortunately. Right, remind me where you are, Seth. I'm in Kansas. Kansas, okay. So it is one of those uh, rare points where the weather actually is good, right? Yeah, well, we get like two weeks a year when that happens. <laughs> so yeah, we're right spent, in the middle of it. Actually, two months over Fort Leavenworth for Army school, and generally the weather was really nice. Um, but it can be really vicious when when some of those thunderstorms hit. So yeah, so you were in the army. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. What did you do in the army? Twenty years as an army intelligence officer, uh, which is how I got into remote viewing in the first place. Uh, yeah. It was an actual military program for, well, military part of it from about 1977 on until 1995, although remote viewing itself really started in the late 60s, early 70s. I've read a little bit about that, and I know there there were a couple of different programs that the U.S. government was interested in uh, in regards to remote viewing. And there is a popular movie called The Men Who Stare at Goats. So is that part of the same organization you were with? Well, <clears throat> the best way to say that is uh, the movie was inspired by real events. Um, and, but it departed from reality quite early on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was, so it came from a book called The Men Who Stare at Goats. And the book claimed to have been an accurate description of, you know, an account of things that happened there. It wasn't. It was actually quite badly uh, distorted from what had actually happened. Uh, the, the author, um, his MO was to go out and collect all the stories he could get 
and then he'd throw out the ones that gave any kind of rational context to it and just keep the real exciting, juicy, sensational ones. So you could imagine that it would be just a bare caricature of the actual story. Um, like I said in a review of the book once, um, it, it totally misrepresented the truth, totally misrepresented the truth, but it was very entertaining and it helped me pass the time when I was on the elliptical at the gym. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it did, especially if you have firsthand knowledge of the actual events. Uh, we can all understand yeah. that, you know, movies and books, you know, they, they have to sell copies and, and sell tickets. So, yeah. So with well, that said, anyway, but yeah, here there, so. yeah, well, they all, they all do. Uh, so with that said, were there any really interesting findings while you were in the military involved with these programs, or was this just something that the government was experimenting with and inevitably just canceled because they spent a lot of money and they tied up a lot of people's times and then nothing really happened? Well, <clears throat> when you say findings, there's a couple ways to take that. One is anecdotal uh, material or things that happened that you, we get, you know, firsthand testimony about, but isn't scientifically testable. And then there are, of course, scientifically testable elements. And in fact, the remote viewing program produced both some really very impressive stories, which are documented. Uh, but they don't count as scientific data points, obviously, but they're still well-documented and they really happen. Uh, and then uh, there was a lot of science that was done in conjunction with it. And the, and there's a lot, a lot of scientific evidence to support the reality of remote viewing. It's interesting that you'll hear skeptics say, well, there's no evidence for this. That's total balderdash. Um, oftentimes you get skeptics who make that claim and you say, well, here it is, peer-reviewed studies, well, you know, a lot of statistical reports, all of this stuff, they'll say, oh, I don't look at that stuff. That can't possibly be true, and so I'm not going to look at it. You know? yeah. uh, and if you think that I'm uh, giving you a cartoon picture of skeptics, that's not true. I've actually had skeptics tell me that, numerous skeptics, and fairly prominent ones. Because it doesn't fit in their worldview, they won't even look at the evidence. It's kind of like the... Uh, the uh, the Catholic Church at the time of Galileo, the, the the Jesuit priests who absolutely couldn't possibly believe that there that we weren't the only that, that the Earth wasn't the only body planetary body in the universe, uh, they refused to look through Galileo's te telescope because it couldn't possibly be true, uh, and of course as we know now it, it it was and the same thing unfortunately is applied to remote viewing and in fact ESP in general there is a ton of well-attested scientific evidence that shows that the stuff is real. So, yeah, go figure. Yeah. So I have a million questions, so I guess we'll, I just have to just run through them. So are remote viewers psychics or is that not fair to say? I'll tell you, you asked a question earlier that I didn't answer, um, but we should answer that right now. And that is what is remote viewing. Right. So, so let, let's talk about what remote viewing is and then that answer will make more sense or that question will make more sense. So <laughs> remote viewing is essentially a consciousness based skill uh, involves extrasensory perception, ESP. Uh, and it's a, it's a skill that's based on ESP consciousness that allows us to essentially extend our consciousness, whatever that means, extend our consciousness to uh, locations and targets that are either 
removed from us by extensive distance. There's the remote part. Um, or in a sealed container or a sealed room or in time, either past or future. Um, and these would be, it's required of this uh, approach that these targets, these objects, whatever, these locations, that they be not perceivable through, through our standard sensory apparatus. In other words, and that's of course where, what the term extrasensory perception means, is you're perceiving things without your senses being involved, okay? So we have uh, these perceptual experiences in circumstances which mainstream science says is impossible to have that kind of experience. Um, a target that I might be asked to address might be in a uh, closed building on the other side of the Ural Mountains in the former Soviet Union, and yet sitting here at my desk, I could verifiably uh, provide information about a target that I had no knowledge of, that I had no idea what it was, and yet I'm able to do that going through the process that, that actually the U.S. government taught me how to use. Interesting. So a little history on that. I know that the government had many different things going in uh, the world of remote viewing. And I think the CIA had their own thing and the U.S. Army had their own thing. And the CIA at one point allegedly had remote viewers look at Mars and were able to gather information about Mars that was like a million years old. Have you okay. heard about There's that? A lot. There's a lot of confusion about all of this. So let me give you quickly a kind of um, chronology of what happened. And then I'll get to the Mars question. All right. So first off, uh, remote viewing itself was, it, the early versions of it were developed or, or discovered or whatever you want to call it, roughly 1969 to 1971 by a, a, a gentleman in New York, who lived in New York at the time, named Ingo Swan. Uh, Ingo Swan was a, an artist. He was an army veteran. He was, uh, and he had had some early uh, strange experiences. He had some out-of-body experiences as a child, which had made him at least interested in this field. He, he got asked, he got involved in participating in, in actual research projects through the City College in New York under Gertrude Schmeidler, uh, the American Society of Psychical Research with uh, Carl Sosas. Um, and Cleve Baxter, who was actually the father of modern polygraphy, lie detector technology, right, uh, got involved with Cleve Baxter as well. So he was involved, and these were legitimate scientific explorations, right? So if he got involved in that, and he came up with this modality that he ultimately named remote viewing. Um, through a, a set of circumstances that I won't get into now because it takes some time, uh, he ended up getting linked uh, to a laser scientists, a quantum physics and laser scientists at Stanford Research Institute, which uh, and now is called SRI International, but back then belonged to Stanford University and it was called the Stanford Research Institute. The scientist's name was Hal Putoff or Dr. Harold E. Putoff. I know. Uh, I know all about Hal. <laughs> yeah. So Hal and Ingo did an experiment uh, that blew the socks off of a lot of people and the CIA got wind of the experiment and the CIA said, we have been trying to figure out why the Russians are spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars, not rubles, hundreds of millions of dollars on, uh, on this kind of research. And we don't know why they're doing it. We need somebody who's got clearances to research it and put off was in a classified research facility. So 
they started, the CIA started a program, they funded the program, SRI conducted it. Uh, in 75, the CIA bailed out because they had gotten into trouble for other reasons. They didn't bail out because of remote viewing. They bailed out because they were in trouble for other things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so anyway, at that point, the Air Force stepped in and picked it up under a guy named Dale Graff who really doesn't get the credit that he deserves yeah, because he's been instrumental in this whole story uh, for decades. Anyway, Dale Graff uh, ran the Air Force program until 79. Meantime, in 77, the Army started its own program. Again, more details than I want to share at the moment. Uh, started its own program in 77, and in 79, these two programs came together. Uh, so the Army was the main uh, operator here, if you will. And they started off just doing research, and then they experimented with counterintelligence. What would the Russians be able to find out if they targeted remote viewers on us? Well, they found out that it worked, so they said, well, why are we bothering remote viewing our own stuff? Let's remote view the Russians instead, right? And that was very successful. Now, as I tell people all the time, remote viewing doesn't always work. But there are times when it absolutely works, and there is plenty of evidence to support that documented objective evidence to support that it did work. There are, of course, always people trying to say how it isn't, you know, how, how that isn't real evidence. Well, it's as much evidence as any other kind of scientific evidence. It really is. So um, the Army then proceeded with the program, and I got recruited to it in 1983. In uh, the summer of 83, I was invited to join the unit. I was at Fort Meade doing a Mideast analyst job, and again, more details than I'll, I'll share right now. I ended up getting uh, invited in. And so I became a remote viewer and ultimately a remote viewing trainer. Um, in fact, I wrote the manual that we used as a, uh, for training at Fort Meade and um, trained with Ingo Swan because by then he had uh, been, he and SRI had developed a really strong working relationship. He worked as a contractor for them, being paid for by the US government. Uh, and he had developed this new methodology called controlled. Well, it's called controlled remote viewing now. It's called coordinate remote viewing back then. Uh, different names, same thing, right? So controlled remote viewing. I was trained along with three, four other folks, uh, military folks, in this process. Unfortunately, uh, through more sets of details, that <laughs> I have a whole book on this, <laughs> how all this stuff happened. But uh, through a, a set of circumstances in 1985, it was informally transferred to the Defense Intelligence Agency. And in 1986, it was formally transferred to the Defense Intelligence Agency, where it stayed until 1995, when Congress tried to transfer it to the CIA. Uh, unfortunately, at that time in 1995, uh, the CIA was, you know, Congress wanted the CIA to take the program back. But the CIA was led by a, uh, let me think now, I think he was a nuclear physicist, um, uh, anyway, uh, Deutsch was uh, the director of this. The director of the CIA his name was Deutsch, and he was absolutely a skeptic about all this stuff. He was a total materialist. Totally rejected the idea that anything like ESP could exist. It didn't matter if you showed him the evidence; he would not buy off on it. And so, ultimately, when Congress tried to transfer it to the CIA, the CIA essentially uh, terminated it. Um, and there's a lot of a lot about that too. Uh, it was clearly a prejudiced uh, result. The CIA 
wanted to terminate it, probably because of Deutsch's influence. Um, so, so you've got this linear story. The interesting thing is after 1975, the CIA never actually had anything directly to do with the program, and yet it is now called a CIA program because it was a CIA that terminated it, right? Yeah. So you see these things on, I'll go to your Mars question now, right? So you see these, uh, these news articles from reporters who absolutely have no clue what they're talking about. They found a report in the, in the CIA archives, the, CIA, the, the archives that the CIA released. They actually aren't the CIA archives. They're the Army, the Air Force, uh, SRI, and uh, DIA archives that the CIA has possession of. So they declassified them, right? So in the CIA archives, um, there is a report from 1984 uh, about a remote viewer who was actually assigned uh, to remote view Mars. I want to say it's something extravagantly ridiculous, like a million years in the past, something like that. Yeah, it was a million. Uh, yeah. yeah. So the story behind that was, first of all, it wasn't the CIA. It was, it was two army personnel who did it inside the art within the army program um it was joe mcmonigle was a remote viewer and skip atwater was the monitor okay so now the interesting thing about this is they actually didn't do it under army auspices it was done at the monroe institute well i guess you could technically say it was but it was done at the monroe institute uh it which is in nellisford virginia which is a uh it's a civilian research and experiential uh, kind of a place. Uh, many of the people listening to it probably know what the Mineral Institute is. And it was done in one of their labs, and it was done in a hemi-sync kind of environment, which is a, this technology that the Mineral Institute uses. And what uh, the goal was that uh, at this point in 1984, we at Fort Meade, specifically Skip Atwater, had gotten the famous JPL photographs of the features on Mars that looked artificial, including the face on Mars, the pyramids, all that stuff. This is the stuff that Richard Hoagland, I think, made famous uh, at, you know, sometime after that. But uh, the Army Remote Viewing Program was early adopters. He got those from Hal Putoff. So uh, the guy at JPL actually is a friend of Putoff's, and he had given Putoff the photos. And Putoff had forwarded copies of them to Skip because he thought, well, maybe our remote viewers can tell us something about these, right? And I'm not exactly sure on why Skip picked a million years BC or anything like that, but he uh, targeted Joe on that, and Joe reported, reported a lot of kind of amazing things, like there were these ancient, uh, very tall, very thin beings who were essentially, you know, I'm, I'm being very loose with, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this very loosely, of they were waiting around to die because their planet was dying and stuff like that. Uh, and anybody can read these, these reports. They're, they're plastered all over the internet right now, right? So, um, so that's the history of the Mars thing. Um, it's interesting uh, that um, we don't have confirmation of the information that was provided. Joe McMonagall, historically, has been one of our most spectacular and impressive remote viewers. But Joe isn't always right, and he himself will admit that. Sometimes he just blows it as spectacularly as he succeeds uh, in some cases. And so, uh, you know, it's hard to make make uh, any 
it's easy to make sense of it. It's hard to evaluate whether there's any legitimacy to what he reviewed. <clears throat> um, short of actually going to Mars and, and checking it out. Uh, now, you will get, again, other kinds of skeptics who will reject any notion that there was ever any intelligent life on Mars. Um, they're, that's a totally irresponsible perspective. We don't have no idea whether there was any intelligent life on Mars. All we can say is that from our general observations, we can't establish that there ever was, okay? Uh, most of the imagery we get of Mars is pretty darn bleak and barren. But as they say, uh, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, right? So there is a certain possibility uh, that there may have been intelligent life on Mars. And there's a certain uh, possibility that maybe Joe McMoneagle tied into that. We just don't know. So um, when these reporters get up and they post, oh, look what the CIA did. Ha, ha, ha. Isn't that funny? Uh, how stupid. Well, first of all, the CIA didn't do it, <laughs> okay, to begin with. They got that part wrong from the start. And second of all, they don't know that there wasn't that kind of stuff there any more than we know that there was. It's just totally the jury's out on this. Uh, if you ask me, I'm inclined to think that it <clears throat> probably that his remote viewing session wasn't accurate, but I can't guarantee that. And knowing Joe, the times he's on, he just really, really nails it. So, so I am not willing to come out and say he's wrong. I'm willing to say I'm doubtful about it, but there could be something legitimate here. You know, I, it just, we just don't know. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, you know, I appreciate your candor, um, you know, and you're not taking one stance or the other and you're using science and, uh, you know, that's, that's refreshing because so many people don't want to do that. They either want to say, yes, there's 1 million year old aliens there or no, you're crazy. And that's never happened because it's just a barren planet. When the answer is you're right, we have no idea. Uh, and until we go there and until we see a face on Mars or we <laughs> happen to put our Mars rover right in front of an alien who flips us off and tells us to go home, yeah, we just have to speculate. But that um, does not necessarily negate the entire science because people love to throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. Yeah, that's uh, right. That's you know, right. I, so I appreciate you admitting that, you know, as equally as not, there are times where uh, people get it wrong. But there have been some really notable cases of it being used, and uh, allegedly once during the Carter administration. Uh, there's some documents from, from Hal Putoff, I think, out there that mentions uh, something to that fact. Can you speak about that scenario? I think you're – well, there's two, actually, uh, two events during the Carter administration involving remote viewing. Of course, this was back uh, under Dale Graff. The Air Force did these two projects. This first one involved a Tu-22, which is a Soviet long-range bomber, um, which maybe I should say which was, because I'm not sure they still, they're still in operation. But uh, long-range bomber had been outfitted as a reconnaissance aircraft, so it had a lot of high top-secret ciphers and, and equipment and coding equipment and stuff on it. And uh, the CIA had actually, this it was based in Libya, and they had hired bribed, whatever you want to call it, a Libyan pilot to steal the plane and fly it down probably to South Africa, although uh, that's not acknowledged anywhere. And uh, somewhere along the route, he apparently got cold feet and bailed out. Um, he figured, he, you know, if he landed with it, the, the, the KGB would find him, right? So anyway, he bailed out and left the plane on autopilot, autopilot and it finally went down somewhere in Zaire. 
which now is one of the Congos. Uh, anyway, so it went down and it went down into Triple Canopy Jungle. And we now, now know what, what happened is it went in like this vertically and it went nose first into the jungle, which means the wreckage was kind of vertically oriented along with all the trees. So it was impossible to find through technical means. Uh, we had targeted our satellites on there. What complicated it even worse was that they thought it had gone down in one place and uh, that's where they targeted the satellites and it had gone down somewhere else. So they were not having any luck finding it. Boy, they really wanted to get their hands on it, right? So um, finally, somebody said, we're going to try the remote viewers and nothing else is working. Let's give it a stab, you know? So they approached Dale and Dale uh, ran two people on it. The first one was an Air Force enlisted woman who got involved in this project. Her name was Rosemary Smith. And, and sadly, we've not been able to locate her. Uh, now there are things out in the open. I'd, I'd love to have a conversation with her about this. Anyway, Rosemary Smith uh, indicated on a map of Africa that what they did is they gave her a map of Africa. They didn't tell her where in Africa they thought the plane had gone down. They didn't tell her what country. They gave her the entire continent, a map of the entire continent. And she made a mark on the map. It's just a little circle, which encompasses about three square miles. And um, they sent in a special ops team from the embassy. And as those guys were walking into the area, they met natives coming out carrying pieces of aircraft. So it was right on. So Dale targeted her on it. And then he went out to SRI and talked to one of the SRI remote viewers, uh, worked um, Gary Langford. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's who it was, Gary Langford. Uh, asked him to do it, and Gary uh, didn't produce the location, but he produced a, a nearly exact description of the setting in which the air, aircraft was actually found. So you essentially had corroborating data from two different sources, completely separated from each other. Um, the only common link, of course, was the project manager, Dale Graff. So um, that would have been just a story. Um, you know, just one more tale that may or may not be true except that uh, Jimmy Carter, who was president at the time and got briefed on the project, in two different settings actually told the story. He got a little bit garbled, but he did confirm that it happened. Uh, the first instance, well, I don't know what order is in, but in his day book journal of his administration, there is actually a passage in there that talks about this event um, and the actual recovery of the aircraft. Uh, and then when he was at a convocation in, at Emory University in, I want to say, 1994, I think, uh, there was a Reuters report on this. Uh, somebody asked him during the Q&A afterwards, they said, well, what was the most unusual thing that happened during your presidency? And, of course, um, everybody was thinking he was going to talk about being attacked by the bunny in the canoe, you know, or, or maybe his, his UFO observation, you know, he'd seen a UFO or whatever. He didn't mention either of those things. He talked about, he said that uh, we had lost an airplane and they brought in a psychic and she gave us some latitude and longitude numbers and we pointed our satellites there and that's where the plane was. Now, he got things kind of confused. First of all, this was 20 years after the fact. He had gotten it third hand from Stansfield Turner, the CIA director at the time. And so he, he misremembered a lot of the details. But the, the essentials of what happened were in fact accurate and confirmed that this indeed happened. So that was one. The other one had to do with the MX missile program. So 
uh, I don't know, most of your folks, listeners are probably too young to, to remember this, but the MX missile, the idea with that missile was that uh, it was a big ICBM, intercontinental ballistic missile that uh, had multiple warheads on it. But the problem was the Soviet systems were getting so good that they could target pretty, they could pinpoint uh, the silos where our missiles might be. So they're trying to come up with a thing that would keep the Soviets from being able to do that. So what they did was they uh, came up with this uh, shell game plan where you had these shelters in a circle and they were all over the, going to be all over the Great Basin. So the missile would be shuttled from, sh- from uh, uh, shelter to shelter. Uh, there might be 12 shelters in, the, in this area, right? And, um, and there would be like hundreds of different these racetrack shelter complexes around about. And so then the Russians wouldn't know which one the missiles were in. Well, uh, somebody said, well, let's see if the remote viewers can figure this out. And so, uh, again, more details than I'm going to tell you. But uh, the remote they ran the remote viewing simulation on the shelter plan like this. And the remote viewer, uh, with a number of tries at it, and then some sophisticated statistical error correction, was able to identify 10 out of 10 times the correct shelter where the missile would have been uh, hidden. And so later, not too much after that, Carter canceled this uh, shelter program, basing program. There's a lot of different reasons. And until recently, uh, nobody knew the real bottom line on this. Uh, you know, they didn't know what role remote viewing had played in it. Not even put off knew that. But recently, a letter from Senator Warner was uncovered, who had... Uh, had conversations about this and was aware of the whole deal and acknowledged essentially that, that the remote viewing success against this, remembering that the Russians had their own remote viewing program, the remote viewing success on this was a major element in getting that program canceled. So it did have an impact, a significant impact on that particular policy decision. So there you go. That was probably more more extensive than you'd expected, right? No, no, that's that's perfect. Actually, you know, I mean, I'm a very analytical person, so you know, I like the little details. I like the tidbits because to me, that just adds validity to the whole thing. You know, in full disclosure, I I came to this with an open mind, and you know, I tried not to make any kind of judgments. I don't know a whole lot about remote viewing, other than you know, kind of your internet research forum things that everybody knows about. You know, the million year old Martians and. The, some of the other things. So it's good to talk to somebody who has some firsthand knowledge uh, just to kind of bounce some of those ideas off of. So it sounds like Carter valued it. Have there been any other practical applications of this within the United States government that uh, are unclassified? Well, I mean, there's lots of success stories. Um, Practical applications, yes. I mean, uh, a lot of the stuff, it isn't that it's not, that it's classified, it's that we don't have all the details. Um, so in any intelligence collection program, you send off your, your results to the tasker, to the requester. And then the requester is supposed to give you um, an evaluation of your results. Uh, the, the bare minimum evaluation is from of no value to some value, to mixed value to, uh, I don't know what the next one is, but it's more value, right? To very valuable, right? Um, and, and I'm not using the right terms here. I don't remember exactly how they created, but 
but we had, um, when I say we, and from the beginning of the program to the, the end, as far as we got evaluations, they were roughly slightly more of value than there were of no value, which means in a, in a, in a, in a, in an approach that in principle, according to science, shouldn't give you any value at all. The agencies were actually saying that we were providing them useful intelligence. Okay. Not everything was useful, but they're saying that a lot of it was. Now you can get a, of no value evaluation, even if everything you told them was true. And the reason is, is because if what you tell them is stuff they already knew, that's of no value to them, right? It only becomes a value if you tell them stuff that they don't know already and turns out to be true. And so when anytime we got an of value, that meant we had tell them something they didn't know that turned out to be correct. So that shows you we had some good, good results. Now, um, there's, uh, unfortunately, of course, in any intelligence field, you don't get all the evaluations. A lot of these folks get it, get your results, and they move on to something else. They don't ever bother to tell you how you did. This is not peculiar to remote viewing. Human intelligence, signals intelligence, everything has that. You oftentimes will not get an evaluation. So there are big holes in, in, in the evaluation uh, record keeping uh, just because people, you know, they didn't bother to tell us whether we did well or not. So that's, that's a neutral data point. You know, that doesn't tell us anything. But the fact is it's slightly more, the, slightly, the, the slight majority of uh, evaluations we got were actually positive. And that's a, that's a very interesting indicator in a discipline such as this. Um, the fact is that you don't do much better than that in any other more conventional collection fields. Uh, I've worked a bit in, in HUMINT. I've worked some in SIGINT, uh, even some in imagery intelligence a little bit. And in fact, the evaluations you get there kind of reflect the same kind of stuff you get with that we got in the remote viewing world in terms of numbers. So anyway, uh, but, but that, that's a, a down in the weeds kind of a discussion. We have one particular uh, tasking type that we did really well at that we do actually have some documentation on. And that was when we got involved in the counter-narcotics world, uh, the war on drugs. Uh, when I say we got involved, we didn't volunteer to do that. They came and asked us to do it, right? So um, for, and for the, the calendar year, it was actually 12 months uh, from sometime in 1989 to sometime in 1990. Uh, the Army actually had operational control of us back, gave it the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, gave it back to the Army. So the Army at that point, almost all, the only things we did were counter-narcotic stuff. We got uh, subtasks to the joint task force and stuff that were that were pursuing you know the the war on drugs and the end result was that we were worked on roughly a hundred uh, counter narcotics problems in other words trying to locate uh, uh, drug smuggling ships or aircraft uh, locate uh, caches of, of drugs contraband and stuff uh, locate drug traffickers locate maybe meetings where drug, drug traffickers are getting together you know all of those kind of the whole spectrum of counter-narcotic stuff and we wrote, worked roughly 100 of those and this is the evaluation that we got from the department of the Army, from, from the intelligence staff of the Department of the Army. This is not remote viewers doing the evaluation. This is the actual clients, the actual customers, right? Uh, said roughly 
one third of the projects we had worked were of no use. Okay, we did not uh, produce anything that was helpful. Another roughly third was of mixed use. There was some information that was that was accurate, some that wasn't, was sort of semi-useful and stuff. But one third of it was very useful, and in fact, the the actual statement from the colonel that uh, that uh, authored the report was that count that uh, drug traffickers were apprehended and contraband was retrieved based solely on the remote viewing data because they test us on stuff that they couldn't they had no other assets on so based solely on the remote viewing data a third of the time they were able to make apprehensions and recover contraband so that's really good uh, in fact one of the actual in the field operators who was also not a remote viewer or involved in the program said told about one one uh, task we worked where it just totally blew him away. He said, and I'm paraphrasing here again because I haven't read it recently, but he sent us a, a document that said, uh, what really amazed me was one event where the remote viewers were able to not only pinpoint where the contraband was on an on a, on a uninhabited island, but they actually described its setting and described its wrapping perfectly accurately. So um, that's an unbiased source. That's a guy who's going to tell you if you screwed up or not, because that's what they're getting paid to do is, is solve the problem. And if you did not succeed in solving the problem, he wasn't going to give me any slaps on the back for that. Right. Yeah. So uh, yes. Now, I mean, there's lots of spectacular stories. Uh, there's the, the uh, typhoon submarine event, Joe McMoney will describe Joe and, and another viewer named Harley Trent described the Typhoon submarine before it was ever launched, before we had any pictures of it. Uh, in fact, before the U.S. government uh, largely was aware of it, right? That was one. And, that, and then there's a bunch over, over the years. So. Now that's really interesting. You said something that uh, struck a chord with me. You know, I mean, I was in the Air Force as well, and I was in Air Force Intelligence. And uh, I worked in uh, Immense, Siget, Human, um, yeah. you know, and I'm familiar with all those things you mentioned. And you are correct when you say that, you know, we get it right and we also get it wrong. And that is with yeah. every discipline of intelligence. But the thing about uh, those, I'll call them traditional uh, methods of intelligence collection is that uh, – you have satellites, you have photos, you have electronic records, you have anything and everything in, at, your, uh, at your leisure to validate. Mm -hmm. And so it's easier to be correct more often or at least know definitively when you're wrong because you have recordings, you have, uh, yeah. pic you have videos, you have pictures, you have databases of information. So for remote viewing to be one third without question successful, that really is interesting to me because, you know, you're, this is after all of the other things probably have been exhausted, right? Because if you could use a Usually, camera, yeah. you would use yeah. a camera. And, you know, if you could use a satellite imagery or if you could use a, a person on the ground taking a photograph, you would do those things. So mm -hmm. they probably use remote viewing as kind of a last ditch option because why not? You know, you have it, it's worth a shot. But to be mm -hmm. one third successful given those conditions when all the traditional things have been exhausted, it really says something to me. Yeah, and and now that I know, you might have told me your background, but I not remembered it. You worked imagery, so you know that, that you know we in, in you know the Hollywood movies, the satellites work miracles, right? Right. As you know, satellites 
they screw up all the time, right? They don't get what you want half the time, right? Or even more often, actually, in some cases, they 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 aren't they aren't miracle workers either, right? Some, but I mean, there's times when nothing else will do but a satellite, obviously. But they're not they're not nearly as capable as people think they are, right? So, and the same thing applies to all the other ints, all the other various forms of intelligence. Here's an interesting further data point that you might find intriguing. So in the counter-narcotics problem, they not only gave us an accounting of our uh, level of reliability, but they contrasted it to the other intelligence approaches as well. So you have imagery, you have signals intelligence, you have human intelligence, human intelligence being informants and spies and that kind of thing, right? So for obvious reasons, the least reliable intelligence source in the counter-narcotics business was signals intelligence because these guys try and avoid communicating in any way that they're going to get caught because they know that we're monitoring the airwaves, right? The next least reliable, interestingly, so so uh, I, I should say this, I don't remember the exact figures, but signals intelligence was roughly five to 6% successful, I think is what they rated it at, somewhere in there. Uh, might've been a little higher now, but not much. Um, imagery intelligence wasn't all that helpful either for obvious reasons because you're going to target satellites it's very hard to find a cigarette boat crossing the caribbean uh, with a satellite it's just you can't retask them quick enough usually and their footprint's too small right so they were i don't know 11 percent success something like that and human intelligence which is the the gold standard in an environment like that because it's often the informants and the people you get uh you know, the undercover folks and stuff that get it in, uh, information on the uh, on these drug programs, you know, drug smuggling operations. That was roughly 15%. They rated us at 32%, the, the remote viewing folks. So we were more successful in the projects we worked than any of the other ints were, according to their evaluation. Yeah. Again, it's not remote viewers or remote viewing handlers or the remote viewing project folks that are doing this evaluation. This is the actual operators, the people who actually for whom this information mattered. Um, there's, it's a very complicated kind of a, a, of a tool to use, uh, given lots of different extraneous circumstances. So um, could we have sustained that level of success? I mean, I don't know. Uh, the program kind of fell apart after that, so it's hard to tell. You know, yeah where they could have gone with it but anyway yeah, i've always wondered why you know why the program failed why there are not remote viewers in mass and i guess after talking to you my theory is this one not everyone is capable of remote viewing maybe and there's probably a short supply of them and there's probably a large degree of people who are bullshitting we'll just we'll just say uh and two now that I know kind of how your mind works as far as the process, why would you go to remote viewers first if we had a satellite to take a picture, right? Because then you have the picture. Um, you know, there's so many other things that you can do that physically record things, whereas remote viewing is, uh, it's not like that. So it would be kind of a last ditch effort. It's a lot more ephemeral. It is, it, it's, it is, you're right, last ditch kind of thing. Um, Interestingly, in the remote viewing community, people have formed a false picture of what remote viewing is capable of. They think it's it's a miracle working kind of a thing, right? And in one respect, it does work miracles 
miracles, but the miracles aren't nearly the miracles that people, you know, in their fantasy minds uh, think they are. Remote viewing has its liabilities, it has its difficulties, has its weaknesses, uh, just like any other methodology has weaknesses. They just have to be different kinds of weaknesses, right? It isn't always successful. Uh, that was one of the complaints that the people who ultimately got rid of it had is because how, you don't know when you're on or not, right? And, well, that's that's true. Almost any discipline, any intelligence discipline, until you get a verification, you don't know whether you're on or not, right? Yep. But but the complaints and and you hear you always hear the re- the success stories. Now I've told you some of the success stories right now. What you don't hear is all the failures, right? And uh, and the same thing applies to all the other intelligence. Uh, well, you do hear about failures in the intelligence world. Uh, if if you have a nine eleven happen, then intelligence. Right folks are the ones that everybody points a finger at, even though it might not have been their fault, actually. But yeah, um, but yeah so so it isn't totally reliable. And you don't, the people who are all excited about it don't hear the, the failures. They only hear the success stories. Um, but that's normal. That's natural. You just got to be aware there's more to the story than you may think there is. Yeah. Um, I think it's still a very useful and could continue to be useful in the intelligence world if it was pursued properly. Um, as far as um, everybody can remote view, I, 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 the only thing that gets in the way of remote viewing is you yourself. Unfortunately, there's a lot of that out there. There's people who don't have a realistic picture of remote viewing or how you do it. And they have all this fantasy stuff and they all want to remote view UFOs or they want to remote view Bigfoot or they want to remote view the astral planes or whatever. And all that does is, is uh, keep you from actually learning how to do it. If that's the kind of target you're doing, you're not going to learn how to do remote viewing because you don't get very verifiable feedback. So you can't know what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. So uh, everybody can do it. The reason they're not using it in the military is because of two things, maybe three. I'll have to see if I come up with a third. The first one is because they're afraid uh, of embarrassment. Okay. Um, that was an ongoing problem. People would use it, but they wouldn't want anybody to admit that they'd used it, you know, in the agencies uh, out of fear of embarrassment. Um, And of course the CIA has gotten a lot of attention, got a lot of attention in canceling it. So there's no way they're going to start it up again because they'd already claimed it didn't work. So if they ever did start doing it again, everybody'd know they were lying about that. Right. Um, The biggest problem is just the skepticism in the higher echelons, people who, don't want to use public funds on something that they don't believe is real. Yeah. So two things I I got to comment on there. So yeah, Bigfoot, Martians, aliens, um, all that stuff, not realistic with remote viewing, right? Well, I actually have a YouTube video on this. I don't know, maybe in your show notes, you can uh, link it. It's uh, remote viewing anomaly targets. Uh, it's one of the Jeff Mishlove series, New Thinking Allowed. And in there, I kind of give a, I hope, a nuanced view of it. Um, people want to use uh, remote viewing to try and explore these mysteries, and that's a natural, understandable thing. The problem is that they go off it, they go off doing it um, without giving due diligence, and so at that point, it just becomes an entertainment thing. It doesn't become an actual, real collection information collection tool. There are ways you can go about it you have to be very careful and that can't be what you start out with i mean there's lots of these people out there who i'm learning how to remote view and they're remote viewing bigfoot 
That's not a way to learn remote viewing. In order to learn remote viewing, you need to remote view veridical target, targets you can actually verify, that you can actually get feedback on. And, and I don't mean, you know, a conspiracy theory where there's this circumstantial evidence. Of, that's not veridical feedback. Vertical feedback is you're remote viewing the Eiffel Tower. You can get a photo of the Eiffel Tower. You could, in principle, go to the Eiffel Tower, um, go up the elevator in the Eiffel Tower. That's the kind of vertical feedback you need to learn remote viewing. Yeah. Once you've mastered it, then you can start playing with this other stuff. But unfortunately, you know, remote viewing the Eiffel Tower isn't all that thrilling as compared to remote viewing the latest UFO flap or whatever, right? Right. So, yeah, you, you have to try to remote view something that you know exists in the first place. Yeah. Because otherwise it's just speculation. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, now that we've got that out of the way, because I feel obliged to, to, to have to ask that question, because people are going to want to know, and they're going to ask me, why didn't I ask about UFOs? Why didn't I ask for Bigfoot? So yeah, we're on the record. Let, let me add then to that. So first off, um, I'm not saying don't remote view UFOs, right? I'm saying don't remote view UFOs until you really have some competency, right? Um, I've been tasked on a lot of UFO and esoteric kinds of things over the years, Um but I also don't don't believe what I've got necessarily. And that's the other problem is people remote view, you know, the Supreme Galactic Council, and they think because they remote viewed it, that they got impressions about it, then everything they got was true. And that's just total baloney. Because no remote viewing session, I say no, very few remote viewing sessions, even by the absolute best in the business, uh, are 100% correct. And so, like Mark Twain used to say, he said, uh, yeah, I don't believe in reading health books. So I'm afraid I might die of a misprint, right? <laughs> so you get people who will remote view or see a remote viewing session somebody else has done on some kind of mystery or anomaly, and they'll immediately accept it as true. No, it's not necessarily true. Until you get some kind of confirmation, you have to take it as tentative. Don't build your life's philosophy on something you get out of a remote viewing session, because you could really be pretty wrong uh, in that. Yeah. So with that said, you know, this show is called Skinwalker Radio and there is a place called Skinwalker Ranch. I know that you're familiar with it, at least to some small degree. And the legend has it that John B. Alexander, who is one of the more prominent or at least more one of the most well-known remote viewers, uh, you know, he was in the similar circles as you, I believe. Uh, well, he wasn't a remote viewer. John wasn't involved in the remote viewing program at all. Mm, interesting. Uh, but he was closely associated with, with General Stubblebine, who was the one that saved the program. Um, John actually, Stubblebine actually purposely excluded John from being read onto the program. He wanted to keep him compartmented out of that. John had other jobs. John was very much into exploring the, the alternate, uh, what do you call it? Um, not alternate realities, uh, the uh, human potentials movement. That's it, you know, the, the various uh, aspects of the human potentials movement, like, you know, like Cleve Baxter's polygraphy of plants and, and stuff, and, and uh, Hemi-Sync, you know, the remote, remote viewing uh, institutes technology and that kind of stuff. John, John had a full plate in researching that. So John really didn't get full knowledge of the program until, you know, after things, uh, started to shut down. Um, but that doesn't mean he's not well-connected. John has a, you know, a lot of connections. 
It's one of the things he's, he's uh, what uh, Malcolm Gladwell would call a connector at the tipping point. He's a connector. He, he, he establishes relations with people and he connects other people. You know, he's, he's really, he's kind of like a pollinated agent out there. And I really value his, his uh, ability to do that and then the things he's done over the years. Um, but he was the, now I'm going to get this title wrong, but he was like the, uh, the manager of the NIDS program, the National Institute of Discovery Science that Bob Bigelow set up in the late 90s, ran into the early 2000s, mm -hmm. I recall. Um, and it was really under the auspices of NIDS that the Skinwalker Ranch uh, was being researched, right? Bigelow owned it, but I, I'm not sure which particular uh, way he owned it. I mean, when you're a, a billionaire, there's lots of ways you own things, right? So he owned it, but I, but it was NIDS that was this organization that was doing the research on it. And uh, of course, Eric uh, Davis was involved in that. Putoff was on the board. Jacques Vallée was on the board. Um, and a bunch of other folks who I know, but right at the moment aren't, aren't coming to mind. Um, so they did research and there were some bizarre things that happened as you probably discussed on your program. Yeah, no, absolutely. Bizarre is, uh, is the way to put it. You know, I'd like to say that there is anything definitive one way or another. Some people 100% say that everything weird at the ranch is directly responsible, um, from the government. You know, it's some kind of secret weapon, weapons testing. Some people say that everything out there is paranormal and paranormal only. Some people say it's, uh, it's all made up. It's all a hoax. Uh, but as you, you know, and as usual, the truth probably lies somewhere in between in the shades of gray that, uh, that are all three of those scenarios. Well, I don't think the government had any involvement in it, frankly. Uh, you know, that's the go-to for everybody because they've watched way too many Hollywood movies, right? <laughs> it's always the government that did it, right? Uh, having had extensive conversation with several of the principals involved, because I've never been to Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, they were talking about bringing me out one time, but but it never happened. Um, they did have Joe McMonagall out there, and it strikes me that Angela Thompson-Smith had some involvement, but I don't think she ever got to the ranch. I don't remember the story there. But, you know, I've talked to Eric about it and, and Hal and John Alexander, you know, and these are all, they were all friends of mine. And so we've had conversations about it. Uh, Colin Kelleher, uh, he and I actually haven't had any direct conversations about it other than I, I one time asked him, I said, okay, so, um, and, and again, here we are paraphrasing because we're dealing with a 67-year-old memory here, right? Uh, I said, so, so something along the lines, what can you tell me about the weird events that happened at, at Skinwalker? And, or I said, uh, are that stuff really happened or whatever? And he said, first of all, it depends on what you're talking about. But yes, it really happened. <laughs> this is a private conversation. He had no reason to say anything, you know, no reason to tell me any baloney, right? Um, so I don't know which of those things happened, but a couple of them. Uh, you know the story of the bulls that ended up in the trailer? Yeah. That story, yeah. I multiple people in the position to know have confirmed that story, and it just puzzles that got them. I, I almost say almost scares them, but they've had a few years to get used to the idea. Yeah, um, yeah. They said it, John told me actually right after the I was visiting him in Vegas uh, years back, obviously, and right after a couple of things happened, um, had to do with their video monitoring system. Or, 
showed these weird things on it and then they went dead. I can't remember the story exactly. Uh, but I, I heard that from John right after it happened. So, and he was just clearly perplexed. This was not something he was feigning. He didn't even have to tell me that story. We were talking about other stuff. And and it just was kind of, it looked like it was kind of bothering me a bit. And so he told me the story, right? Um, that's the kind of setting where you hear a, a, an eyewitness report or, or testimony from someone who has direct knowledge, uh, where even though you don't have actual confirming hard evidence on it, there's something really compelling about it. It's it's not it's clearly not a an attempt to deceive. John was not trying to trying to deceive me or fool me. I was very confident that he was telling me what he perceived as the truth. So, uh, and, and that's been the case with most of these other conversations I've had with folks. All of it was off the record, off the record in terms of not in a public setting, not meant for public consumption. Uh, so I'm I am convinced, even though I didn't have any experiences with it never been to the place i'm quite convinced that there were some very weird and unexplained things going on there uh, that still we don't have an accounting for and it'll be really interesting to get to the bottom of yeah and they they very well may i mean the the history channel has been out there and they've got uh you know an astrophysicist scientist guy who seems to be scientifically minded and an objective uh looking to to find whatever kind of measurable repeatable science data he can pull which is which is good because at least it's an open forum right so not like nids where it's all under lock and key and bigelow has it and then he can do with it what he pleases yeah. you know but uh yeah, it'll be curious to see because everyone is kind of torn on that. And it's a, it's a big issue right now, you know, and we talk to a lot of people on the show who have a lot of strong opinions uh, about that one way or another. Uh, my personal opinion is that there is naturally occurring phenomenon out there, but it's not unique to Skinwalker Ranch because that kind of stuff happens all over the world. Uh, but for whatever reason, it, it maybe does seem to be heightened in that specific part of the country for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the one thing I would say is, yeah, I mean, it, it's not going to stop at the ranch boundaries, obviously. You know, if there is a real phenomenon there, or it's probably multiple phenomena, I would suspect. Um, you know, it's not going to respect, respect property lines. And if it's exist, happening there, it's probably happening in other places as well. Uh, maybe not widespread. I mean, there may be reasons why it's confined to certain areas. But nonetheless, I mean, we just don't know. Uh, one thing I would suggest is we need to be a little cautious about what History Channel and their astrophysicists turns up, right. um, because you know it, it is uh, you know TV, right? And they're they're going to try and make things exciting. It's like all the ghost hunting shows where so far I've never <laughs> seen one actually find a ghost, right? Right. But they make it very exciting, right? <clears throat> but the all, other side of it is there's no necessary reason to believe that uh, these phenomena are going to show up with normal analytical methods, right? So uh, there are a couple possible reasons for that. One is possibly it's non-physical, right? Now, I know that the physicalists out there are going to have a heart attack, but I've, I'm pretty convinced that there are non-physical phenomena in the universe. There are parts of the universe that aren't uh, describable in, in, in the terms of physics. Um, in that case, it's not going to show up on your instrumentation, you know, or, or at least it's unlikely to show up in any conclusive form on instrumentation. That's kind of the problem the ghost hunters have. They're looking for stuff with EM meters and all that. Well, what if it's not electromagnetic? What if it's outside of the physical domain? That you're, you can EM it all day and you're not going to get anything, right? Yeah. So, uh, 
And the other thing is that that the uh, NIDS team had some really competent hard scientists, and they contracted with other competent hard scientists. Uh, I don't know if there's an astrophysicist involved, but there probably was. I'm not even sure an astrophysicist is the right discipline for this. Uh, you know, it, 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 there may be some some other specialty that would be more suitable for the research. But nonetheless, uh, they turned up a lot of evidence, but nothing conclusive, as far as I know. Uh, and uh, and they had some really competent investigators and really competent scientists working that same problem. So, you know, it'd be interesting if, if History Channel does turn up something, some really smoking gun with some fire behind it, I don't know. But, uh, but uh, if anybody out there's staking their hopes on, on success, you know what, just wait and see what happens. Like, you know, there's no guarantees there. Yeah, no, I uh, I agree with you. I do think there are things other than what exists uh, in the physical world. And the question always has been, what are those things and what is the origin of those things? Uh, do you have any opinion on that specifically? I don't, actually. Um, okay. Just like I don't have an opinion on the origin of, of extraterrestrials and all that stuff, other than that they're not from here, right? Yeah. Uh, these phenomena at Skinwalker, um, it could be, <laughs> to use a, a, a fairly appropriate term, it could be indigenous, right? Could could be earth based or earth origin, or it could be something you know UFO related, uh, extraterrestrial locate, uh, related. Uh, some folks want to want to claim it's extra dimensional. Well, who knows? Um, I mean, that's also possible. Right now, we it, it's all speculation. We, nobody knows what it is. We don't have a cause and effect. We don't have uh, you know the etiology of some of these phenomena. We don't have any of that stuff. We have essentially observational. And I think a modest amount of instrumental kinds of evidence that things happen, uh, and uh, that that helps us know that things happen. It doesn't help us know how or why. So, yeah, no, I think that's fair to say. Um, so I want to do just a couple real quick questions. Uh, can be yes or no. Uh, I'm sure you get asked this kind of stuff all the time, but I think my listeners. <laughs> Yeah, he's nodding his head. I think my listeners are will be very curious to know. Uh, do you think that aliens exist? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm convinced of that. Now, I used to be what I call a a sympathetic agnostic uh, is, is I think how I phrase it. So, um, I I knew that obviously people who reject the idea altogether, they don't they have no grounds for rejection. I mean. We don't know enough about the universe to say there are no extraterrestrial intelligences. Um, the other side of it, of course, is that uh, by reason of theology, I believe there are, there are extraterrestrial intelligences. So I'm, I'm a member of the so-called Mormon Church, right? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And as I like to tell my late-night radio audiences when I'm on with Coast to Coast or whoever I say, I belong to the only Christian denomination that believes as a point of doctrine uh, that there is intelligent life on other planets because <laughs> Mormons believe that God created uh, created uh, intelligent beings not just here but on many other planets throughout the universe um, and so you know I, I'm inclined from a religious perspective to believe that but it's really even more common sense perspective it's ridiculous to think that we're the only ones here um, in this entire galaxy you know uh, and I think even and some of the hardcore scientists are coming to acknowledge that. I think Carl Sagan probably 
uh, felt that that the it, that it was not impossible that there was intelligent life elsewhere. I haven't read a lot of his stuff, but I think he probably was sympathetic to that. Um, so uh, yeah, so <clears throat> I'm and then based on further experiences and things that I've learned, uh, some of which I can't talk about, um, I am I am convinced that there is uh, extraterrestrial intelligent life, and that to some degree uh, it's making its it's it's uh, I don't want to say it's making its presence known. I'm not sure it's in, that's intentional. Uh, in some degree, I think that we're encountering some phenomena associated with that, even today in the UFO phenomena or UAP, if you want to use yep. the new word, right? So extraterrestrial origin, yeah, good, bad, or other, yes, or or, or both, all. Okay, so I think you get people like I guess uh, Greer is all about. They're all friendly. That's just a ridiculous point of view, right? I agree. Yeah, the conquistadors were far superior <laughs> to the Mayans, but but they certainly weren't friendly, right? <laughs> so uh, people assume that because these extraterrestrials must be more advanced than us, which the indicators are, right? must be more advanced then they must be more advanced uh morally as well well you know what we have got several centuries of technological advancement behind us since before the industrial revolution started the age of enlightenment before that our morals haven't changed a bit in that yeah. time if anything they've gotten worse yeah we so, killed way more people since the industrial revolution than before say again we, I, th I think we killed way more people in warfare post-industrial revolution than we did pre-industrial yeah, We became revolution. more efficient at it, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, now, what that means is, when I say that, there are people today who are much more advanced morally. There are people today who are totally depraved morally, right? And there's no reason to think that you don't find that in an extraterrestrial community as well, that you have some who are well-disposed and some who are not. Uh, there are some who probably don't even recognize us as anything more than a thin, fuzzy crust on this planet. That, that they, and that's, I think, the biggest danger is that you'll get a civilization that is so far advanced that they don't actually recognize us as being any more than we recognize ants as being. Right? They come here and they don't even think about us, you know, potentially. They'll say, hey, we need water. That, well, that planet's got tons of water. Let's go get it. And they come here and they say, Oh, look at this funny, these little funny bumps here, <laughs> you know, wipe out New York City, right, or whatever, right? Um, so there are these three three possibilities. I think they all exist. One, that some of them are, are nice and friendly. Some of them are not, that they're actually malicious. And some who don't even care. Yeah. Just, yeah. We're just a speed bump in, in the road to their progress, right? Yeah, that's And fair. so we need to be cautious. We just can't go out like that scene in... In, uh, in uh, okay, what is it? 1994, the movie where the aliens attacked Independence Day, Independence. right? Yeah, Independence Day. Oh, look, it's so beautiful, <laughs> right? <laughs> that that is a perfectly feasible thing, and people who don't acknowledge that, who just think that everything's wonderful in outer space, uh, are are simply extrapolating their thoughts. It's, it's what's called mirror, mirror, imaging, mirror imaging in the intelligence world, where you assume that your opponent, whether an enemy or not, 
your opponent thinks the way you do. That's a major mistake has led to more wars, I think, than almost anything, is people, you assuming that the other guy is thinking what you're thinking, and they're not in most cases. And the same thing applies here in extrapolating how we feel about things onto it, you know, extraterrestrial civilizations that we have absolutely no knowledge of. We don't know what they're like. So being prepared uh, for any eventuality is a whole lot smarter than just op opening up your arms and saying, come take me because they might. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fair. So last question I have, uh, assuming that aliens are real, all right, and we're working off that assumption, do you think that the government knows it? And do you think that the government is, I quote, I guess, in on it, right? Do you think that they have a relationship with extraterrestrials uh, currently? Or are the UFOs and UFPs the things that we're seeing? You know, the Tic Tac UFO, uh, the gimbal, the go fast, uh, all these things. Do you think those are, that's us? So, so the first honest answer is I have no idea, okay, whether the government's got involved or not. But my, in my opinion, the government doesn't know what's going on here. I think the same thing's happening in the government with the UFOs to a great extent has happened with the RV program where you get a whole bunch of doubters and skeptics who are running the show. And even if they think there might be something to it, they don't want to think that there might be something to it, right? Because it doesn't meet their worldview and they've got a lot of stuff going on right now that they have to worry about. You know, people think of the government as this monolithic thing. Having worked in the government, it's just a bunch of people with a whole bunch of different tasks and half the time, one half of them doesn't know what the other half of them is doing. And, you know, it, it's not, it's not this big monolithic evil bad guy that you think it is. It makes mistakes. Sometimes you get people with agendas that's, that do things that are not good for other people. Sometimes you get people with agendas who do things that are, are good for other people, right? It, it's not something that you can claim is got this massive, purpose that's driving it. it just that's just totally fantasy to believe that about the government now is it possible the government knows more than everybody else does about it it's possible in fact if it was doing its job it would know more about than everybody else because yeah. its job is to keep us safe right and generally speaking the government does a pretty decent job of that when you have somebody who's competent running the show no comment on current circumstances, but um, but it does make mistakes. Does it know more about aliens and e ETs and stuff? I hope so. I hope so. Do we sh should it be telling us everything it knows? That depends. I mean, there are some things about aliens and ETs. Some some things I could conceive about aliens that, that the government would have no business sharing with us. With the, with the public at large. There are some things that do need to be secret. The obvious one is how to build a, a hydrogen bomb, right? Um, and there could be equivalent kinds of things dealing with extraterrestrials. Um, are there things that it could reveal to us that it knows and it should reveal to us? If it does know more, it, there probably are some of those things. I mean, uh, the classification system isn't 100% correct and everything it declassifies and keeps classified. In fact, oftentimes it 
keeps things classified that really it doesn't need to. Um, so I think there probably is stuff. But are, is the government colluding with aliens? That's something I really, really highly doubt. I can't think of a single scenario in which that makes any sense. And I've thought of a lot of, and both thought of and heard a lot of scenarios, probably all, all of them. And I don't think any of them that support that kind of a notion make any sense at all. I mean, if you're talking about a race that is, you know, thousands, millions of years far beyond us technologically, why do they need to collude with the government? That's ridiculous. Right. You know? It's like, um, uh, who is it? There's, there's one ufologist, UFO proponent out there who, who, you know, he talks about, I forget who it was, somebody's telling me about this the other day, talks about, you know, these, these uh, UFOs can manipulate our nuclear weapon systems. They can nuclear, manipulate our nuclear power plants. But we have to shut down our radars because it's interfering with them. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. You know, if they, can, if they can manipulate from a distance nuclear processes, radar is going to be no big deal for them. Right. <laughs> right? It's just silly. It's just yeah. silly. No. Okay, crazy. anyway, sorry, I'm on so far. No, no, I appreciate it. No, I, I really value all your opinions and the information you shared with us today. It has been a great interview and I want to thank you for coming on the show. So if people want to learn more about remote viewing, I understand you have an institution and I would like to give you the opportunity to tell them how they can get in touch with you or learn more about remote viewing. Okay, so my website is rviewer.com. That's the letter R in the word viewer. So R-V-I-E-W-E-R.com. Um, so you can go there and you can find everything there, but it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff. It's a big website in terms of uh, information. So I'm going to tell you a couple other things. One is I do have a remote viewing blog. It's called the remote viewing slash remote perception blog. Uh, and if you search for that, you'll find it. And I have a lot of articles, uh, about remote viewing, about consciousness, about extrasensory perception, such on that. Um, and um, I have a couple of books, but the one I want to recommend is uh, The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing. Okay, The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing. I wrote that book for people who are just getting into remote viewing, but also for people who have friends that are just getting into remote viewing. A no-nonsense, no-fantasy, just down-and-dirty survey of the remote viewing world. In other words, I talk a bit about what may make remote viewing work. I talk about how to do just basic, simple remote viewing experiments. I talk a little bit about the hit. I talk about how to find a teacher if you want to teach, you know, if you want to learn it. I talk about a wide variety of, uh, I talk about how you use remote viewing, the different ways it's been used. So the essential guide to remote viewing, I really recommend that. And if you want to learn it, since I'm not up and teaching live remote viewing right now, uh, normally I have a very uh, well-established remote viewing training program in-person training program, which you can find about find out about on my site, rviewer.com. Uh, since that has been quarantined away, uh, you can look up remote perception basic operational training, which is a distilled or condensed version of my basic CRV course. Uh, it'll, it, it's a one-stop shop. You can learn how to do the basics of remote viewing with that video. So that's again called remote perception, basic operational training. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks for those resources. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and we'll catch up again in the future. You're welcome. And I'd be happy to talk again if we can come up with something new to, new to talk about, right? All right. Thanks.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Christian Paranormal Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and visit the website at www.patriotradionetwork.org. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod at www.incompetech.org. Transmission incoming, over. Copy that, transmission received.